Thank you, Father, once again for your word. Thank you for your spirit that is living and acting in your word. And I pray that your spirit would be here mightily today, living and active in Jackie, speaking through her, helping her, expressing what you have for us to hear. And I pray that our hearts would be tender to hear it and that we would leave this place today changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Beth. All right, good morning, ladies. I have been uh, thinking and praying for you this week as I've been working through this passage and preparing to teach. I'm not going to lie, there have been some parts that have really stretched me and left me scratching my head, and I have needed the Lord and the help of others as I have prepared. So if you felt that way this week, bless you. I hope this morning you will feel encouraged to persevere. Um, I'm going to encourage you guys to go ahead and take out the table that was at the end of your lesson um, this week, lesson 13. We're going to walk through the passage, and so I just thought it would be a good opportunity to fill in anything that maybe seemed confusing as we're going through. And on the other side, there's a notes page, so you can just flip it for your notes today. So that's the table at the end of lesson 13 on page 61. Okay. Like I do most of the time, I want to get us situated in our literary context as we begin, in particular because next week we'll be headed into chapter 5 and moving into the last section of the epistle. So let's review, just real quick, chapters 1 and 2. Paul was defending his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ and the gospel that he preaches as the true gospel. In chapters 3 and 4, where we've been so far this semester, Paul is laying out the theology behind and underneath the gospel. He's clarifying questions around blessing and curse, slavery and freedom, the spirit and works of the law, um, and Abraham and inheritance. So today's lesson will springboard us into chapters 5 and 6, where Paul's going to help the Galatians apply the gospel to their lives. Okay, So last week... Pam led us through Paul's personal appeal to the Galatians, drawing on their history with him and expressing his parental anguish as he desires Christ to be formed in them. So my aim for us this week is that we would understand our identity in Christ as children of promise and that because we know our identity, we would walk in the freedom that Christ purchased for us on the cross. So Pam's going to put our outline for today on the screen behind me, and I'll just read through it real quick. Um, Galatians 4, 21 through chapter 5, verse 1. So in verses um, 21 and 23 through 23, Paul engages the Galatians with a contrasting analogy that's related to Abraham. And then point number two in verses 24 through 30, Paul explains the analogy to the Galatians, and this has three subpoints. So In verses 24 and 25, Hagar represents slavery to the law. In verses 26 through 28, the Galatian believers are free. They are children of promise. And then in verses 29 and 30, like Isaac, the Galatian believers are being persecuted by those who are born according to the flesh. And then our last point Um, In verse 31 and chapter 5, verse 1, Paul encourages the Galatian believers 
by reminding them of their identity and exhorts them to stand firm in grace, in their freedom. Okay, so this is going to stay up there the whole time. You'll have time to write, just so you know. We've got seven pages. We're moving forward. So let's start with point one, verses 21 through 23. Paul engages the Galatians with a contrasting analogy related to Abraham. So Abraham has been the subject of much of the chapters 3 and 4. Paul's been laboring to show that those who are of faith in Christ are Abraham's offspring, and therefore the ones who will inherit the covenant promises God made to Abraham. So now this analogy is meant to be yet another inroad to the Galatians' minds and hearts with the goal that they will grasp the truth of the gospel and stand firm. So what strategies has Paul used so far to persuade the Galatians that his gospel is true? I'm going to list them. So up to this point, Paul has used rhetorical questions. He's woven together Old Testament scriptures that point to Jesus. He's explained how covenants can't be annulled or added to after they've been ratified. He explained the purpose of the law and what it can and can't do. He's highlighted the centrality of the work of Christ in his death and resurrection to free us from slavery to sin and the law. He's pointed out the inferior nature of the weak and worthless elementary principles that the Galatians had been returning to. And he has appealed to them personally, reminding them of the blessedness they felt at first and expressing his, expressing his perplexity at their failure to hold fast to the gospel and live in freedom. So Paul's been using a lot of different strategies, a lot of different ways to try to get his point across. Okay, so with that background, I want you to open up to chapter 4, verse 21. We're going to read through our passage in chunks today as we work through it. So first we'll read verses 21 through 23. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Paul starts with that perplexed tone from the end of the last passage, doesn't he? He addresses the Galatians who are being drawn to law-keeping with a familiar story, the story of the patriarch Abraham. He distills Galatians 5 through 21 down, and sets the stage for a contrast. Abraham has two sons, but they have different mothers. One mother is a slave, and the other free. Um, remember chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 from two weeks ago? That passage was about slaves and heirs, right? So we'll notice that Paul doesn't use the mother's names yet. He's focusing on their statuses. They're slave and free, okay? So Paul also highlights how the sons are born. Why does he do that? Paul is returning to the contrast of reliance on human works versus God's promise from chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. The son born to the slave was born according to the flesh. He was born by human effort. And the son born to the free woman was born through a promise, which was God's work. Okay, so we're going to move to point two now. Paul explains his analogy to the Galatians 
And we'll start with letter A. Hagar represents slavery to the law. Verse 24. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. So maybe, maybe you're like me and you got really hung up on allegory versus uh, typology. Um, I think I spent half the day yesterday <laughs> trying to figure out if there was some deep significance that I was missing. Um, and I think the main point for us to see is that Paul is referencing a historical narrative and he's making a spiritual analogy, okay? So for now, um, I have landed on this idea. Analogy is sufficient for me to understand Paul's point, okay? Um, but if you're interested, I contacted Andy Nacelli for some help <laughs> with this passage, um, and he recommended an article by our own Ardal Canaday, who teaches in the Mosaic Sunday School class during the 9 a.m. service. So if you're interested in checking that out, we're going to link it in this week's email address. It's lengthy. It's probably 28 pages, but very helpful. So if you're the one, if you're the overachiever who really wants to get it sorted, we will have a resource for you, okay? All right, so but back to our text. Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to begin unfolding this analogy. He's making points about slavery and sonship in his choice of these two women. Paul says that these two women represent two covenants. So he makes this connection between slavery and covenant and sonship and covenant, okay? So he starts with the covenant from Mount Sinai. And if we remember Exodus chapters 19 through 33, we remember that after the Hebrews uh, left Egypt, the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, right? So we see that Mount Sinai, in Paul's analogy, is representing the law, all right? Okay, so Paul says that that slave woman, that covenant, um, oh, I lost my place. That slave woman, that covenant is bearing children for slavery. That's interesting because if we remember the historical narrative in Genesis, there is a slave woman, but her son does not become a slave, Okay, so this is not a historical retelling of the Genesis account. Paul is making a spiritual point, okay? So now Paul gives this woman a name. Her name is Hagar, and then he repeats himself. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. But what Paul says next is perhaps the biggest surprise for those who are being persuaded that they must believe in Jesus and keep the law. Paul says she, Hagar, corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. So if they were tracking with Paul, they have connected themselves now with the Mosaic Covenant, the law, and slavery. So to understand why it would be a big surprise, I think we need to remember the biblical context here. So in your workbook on page 54, you don't have to turn there, page 54, question 3, you read Genesis 16, 17, and 21. So I'm going to summarize the story quickly, but I'm going to zoom in a little bit on Hagar's story. Um, but before I, I do that, I want to take a minute to be transparent with you. So 
Um, many of you know that over the summer, the teaching team got together to work through the passage or the whole book of Galatians together. Um, and I really struggled when we came to this section because I couldn't understand Paul's perspective on Hagar. It kind of felt like he was lumping her in this bad category, which seemed wrong. It felt like he was insulting Hagar. And maybe what seemed worse was that it seemed he was elevating Sarah, even though she was often the cause of Hagar's suffering. And I couldn't reconcile that with Paul's repeated pointing to being in Christ as the goal of the Abrahamic promise. Like, why does Paul use this analogy if he's already said, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles in chapter 3, verse 14. And there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus in chapter 3, verse 28. So I've spent months wrestling over this passage and asking the Lord to help me understand because I want to submit to the authority of his word. And maybe some of you are in the same boat. And I want to say to you, keep going. Keep wrestling. God's word is good and trustworthy, and his spirit will help us to understand his word. So for this passage, I think I've realized that Paul is not minimizing Hagar's, Hagar's suffering. I think that just by using her name, he's vividly illustrating what slavery is. I think the reason he uses Hagar as an example is to further drive home the point he was making back in chapters three, chapter 3, verse 23, all the way through chapter 4, verse 11, that there are these two categories of people. There are slaves um, and sons who inherit. He doesn't use Hagar because she's a horrible person who we should be loath to emulate, right? He uses Hagar because she's a slave. She's a slave in Abraham's story. And her son does not inherit what the child of promise inherits. So, with that said, let's look at the biblical context. So in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, God promises offspring to Abraham, his very own son, and offspring as numerous as the stars. And Abraham believes God, and it's credited to him as righteousness. Right? The rest of chapter 15 describes God establishing his one-sided covenant with Abraham. Remember, Abraham is sleeping while God does this, right? So then in chapter 16, Sarai tries to solve the problem of her barrenness by persuading Abraham to sleep with her Egyptian servant, Hagar. Hagar conceives, and the relationship with Sarai goes sour. Translations differ as to how 16, 4, and 5 should be translated, either as the ESV translates, um, Hagar looked with contempt on her mistress, or her mistress was dishonorable in her eyes. Sarai complains about this sour relationship to Abraham, and then Abraham passively tells her to treat Hagar however she wants. She's your slave, you handle it. Sarai deals harshly with Hagar, and Hagar flees. So now I'm going to read this section, verses 7 through 16, from chapter 16 to you. The angel of the Lord, so note that, those of you who remember the book of Joshua, the angel of the Lord appearing to Joshua, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. 
the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Laheroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. I want you to notice God's gentleness and his goodness to Hagar in her suffering, and also how he sovereignly is orchestrating her life, okay? So then we come to chapter 17. 13 years have passed, and God gives Abraham the covenant of circumcision. God promises a son through Sarah, and Abraham says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God intends to establish his covenant with the son to be born to the barren woman. God promises to bless Ishmael, but his covenant will be with Isaac, this child of promise. So in chapter 21, Isaac is born. A few more years pass. Abraham throws a party when Isaac is weaned, which sounds very reasonable to any of you who have weaned children, that there should be a party when you're done, right? Um, and Sarah sees Ishmael laughing, possibly mocking. We're not really sure from the translation, which I don't know if you have a teenage son. I do. This description rings familiar to me. Um, she tells Abraham to cast out the slave woman with her son, right? And Abraham doesn't want to. He goes to God, and God tells him to do it, because through Isaac, your offspring will be named, And God says, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So God gives Abraham some promise that Ishmael's going to be okay, right? Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away with some bread and a skin of water, and they wandered in the wilderness. And then we read in verse 15 through 21. I'm going to try not to cry. This one makes me cry every time. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up. Lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. 
And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So do you see again God's care and provision for Hagar and Ishmael in their suffering? So if you want to read about how God keeps his promises to Hagar and Ishmael, which are not part of our text, (laughs) read Genesis 25, verses 12 through 18. Okay. So again, I'm not going to read it. You can read it later. (laughs) Um. Okay, so again, Paul is focusing on Hagar's status as a slave. Not on her whole story, but we can clearly see Hagar's slavery in this narrative, right? Her lack of freedom, her suffering, But how do we see the slavery of the present Jerusalem? So I want us to remember chapter 3, verse 10. 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, right? And chapter 3, verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. So Paul has already been explaining what the present Jerusalem's slavery entails, being under a curse, and imprisoned. And when you think about, um, this was a question in your workbook, when you think about the Judaizers' possible response to being called children of Hagar in slavery, you can almost hear echoes of John 8. Some of you were in our John, our John study last year. So as Jesus argues with the Pharisees during the Feast of Booths about who is a slave to sin and who is free, the, sla- the Pharisees say, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So I want to encourage you to read through John 8 this week and see the unity of the message of Jesus in this gospel and what Paul is preaching to the Galatians. So Paul's given a shock to the Galatians by telling them they are, in reality, slaves to the law. They are sons of the slave woman if they rely on law-keeping for their salvation. There's a point to this shocking message, though. He's calling them back, right, to the true gospel, and that's real love, right? He's He's not just telling them, like, You are so stupid for leaving the gospel, right? He's calling them back to it. So let's move on to the second point, um, letter B of the second point. Paul's going to explain to the Galatian believers that they're free and children of promise. So let's read verses 26 through 28. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. 
Now, isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't say, but Sarah is free and she is our mother, right? The point of this analogy is not genetic descendants. Again, Paul is pointing to categories of slave and free. So by referring to the Jerusalem above, Paul's pointing further forward in time to the final consummation, the day when all of God's children have been gathered in and he will dwell with us forever and we will experience the full freedom that we have been given in Christ. And Paul also quotes Isaiah 54.1 to reiterate the inclusion of the Gentiles into the children of promise. Like Sarah, the free woman was barren and desolate. And Isaiah prophesies that the children of the desolate one, the Jerusalem above, will be more than those of the one who has a husband. And in this context, we understand that to be Hagar, the one bearing children for slavery. Okay? And then in verse 28, he tells the Galatian believers that they are children of promise, like Isaac. There is a miracle that has happened to make them alive, right? So in case you're doubting which side you fall on, Galatians, Paul makes it extra clear. Like he did in in chapter 3, verse 29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise, And in chapter 4, verse 7, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So now we're going to move on to letter C for point two. Paul is going to finish explaining the analogy to the Galatians by explaining that they will face persecution from those born according to the flesh. So let's read verses 29 and 30. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. In this last section of the analogy, Paul gives the Galatian a heads up. Just because you're a child of promise that does not mean you won't face persecution. The child born according to the Spirit experienced it then, and you can expect to experience it too. Persecution doesn't mean that you're not accurately understanding the gospel. Persecution doesn't mean that the gospel isn't true. So what does Paul tell them to do? He tells them to cast out the slave woman and her son because they won't inherit So I don't think that Paul is telling the Galatian believers to expel those being persuaded towards Jesus plus law-keeping. He's writing to call them back to the true gospel. So kicking them out probably isn't what he had in mind. Rather, I think he's telling them to reject the false gospel that they're uh, starting to believe, that they're moving towards. So... Now we're going to come to point three and my aim for us today. Paul encourages the Galatian believers by reminding them of their identity and exhorts them to stand firm in grace and freedom. So let's read our last two verses, verse 31 and chapter 5, verse 1. Remembering that chapter 5, verse 1 is a transitional verse, and it'll springboard us into next week. Verse 31, so brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. 
For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul reiterates one more time the Galatian believers' identities as children of the free woman, children of promise, born according to the Spirit. And then Paul says this basic but powerful truth. Christ set you free so that you would be free. So what do we do with that freedom? Well, we'll find out uh, what more Paul has to say about that in the coming weeks. But for starters, we don't turn back to slavery, right? That yoke of slavery doesn't have to look like trying to keep the Mosaic law. Like we talked about two weeks ago, our hearts are skilled at creating laws that we feel like we must follow to be a Christian, But Paul's message over and over in this letter is that we are his heirs not by what we do, but by faith in Christ, which is the evidence that his spirit is in us. Okay? So may the Lord grant us discernment and the confidence in him to repent when, not if, we create new laws that displace the gospel in our hearts, because we will. And God is gracious and merciful to forgive us when we repent of our sin, right? And may he help us to treasure this free gift of grace, this inheritance which we did not earn. Well, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your free gift of grace in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray for us in this room um, that we would Um, that we would be repenters, that what would be normative in our life is to see our sin and turn away from it and turn back to you, trusting in your gracious heart towards your children. I thank you for Christ who paid the penalty for all of our sin once for all. Um, And I pray, Lord, that you would let these truths go deep in our hearts, that we would be conformed more and more to his image and that we would have joy in our salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.